0: Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen, and back in studio with me today are two of my favorite fellow Problematic Women, Heritage Foundation Research Associate for the Center for Life, Religion, and Family, Emma Waters, is back with us, as well as Assistant Director and Senior Policy Analyst for the Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation, Brenda Hafera. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks, Virginia. Yeah, we've been looking forward to it.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having us.
0: This is going to be a fun show. Now, we are recording right after Labor Day weekend. <sighs> such, uh, such a beautiful weekend to have at the end of summer, but also I feel like mixed feelings because this is this big transition and now we're all looking towards fall. Do you all consider... The end of Labor Day weekend to actually be the beginning of fall? Or like me, are you like, no, we have to go by the calendar and wait till the actual first day of autumn, which I think this year is September 22nd? I
2: like to wait until September 22nd. <laughs> um, and the weather in DC this week, oh, being brutal. back in the 90s, suggests that that makes the most sense. though <laughs> so we're all sweating and dying um, under the heat this week. I know. And I also... Really like wearing all of my white dresses. And Mm. so I justify blurring the Labor Day rule with saying it's still technically summer until September 22nd. Mm -hmm. I will wear all of my white pants and white dresses for as long as I can.
0: Absolutely. I've been resisting any temptation to get pumpkin spice. I hear Starbucks already has (laughs) theirs. I'm like, no, it, like you said, it's 100, not quite 100, it's 90 degrees outside. And like, I can't drink a pumpkin spice latte when I'm literally sweating and I feel like I'm swimming in the humidity.
1: right the stores are starting to stock all those things and it doesn't feel like it although i will say we are in the dc bubble and there is a marker of when your commute starts getting worse and today was the day that mm-hmm. was the start of like after august recess there is a transition
0: yep Now it took me over an hour it usually takes me like 30 or 40 minutes to get to work yeah. it was like oh it really still takes it takes you 40 minutes to get to work Yeah, I know. And if there's no traffic at all, it's 25 minutes. But uh, with traffic, it's usually 40 minutes. I am such an urban localist.
2: I live on the hill. I refuse to drive more than 20 minutes to go anywhere. And if I have
0: to, my husband drives and I'm like really grumpy about it. (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's worth it to live outside of Washington, D.C. But I do understand the benefit of of living in the district. But I was was in D.C. on Sunday, and I I felt like, oh, man, I got to get out of here. Why am I here on a weekend? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just something about having a little more space outside. But for all of those who want to visit D.C., there's so much to see. There's so much to do. I don't want to say anything negative. Come visit our city. It's great. <laughs> I think it's the greatest city in the United States for me, so... <laughs> I can agree with that. I can get behind that. All right. Well, we have a lot to weigh in on during today's edition of Problematic Women. So up on today's show, we talk about the declining birth rate and some of the factors that are causing women to choose to have fewer kids or no children at all. And since it takes two to make a baby, we will also discuss the role that men are playing in this situation. Then we will break down the trad wives trend and how trad wives might be accidentally embracing some of the harmful characteristics of the feminist movement. Plus, it looks like the majority of Americans are addicted to their phones. Are you? And as always, we'll be crowning our problematic woman of the week.
2: Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women. Those whose views and opinions are often excluded by
0: those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving us a five-star reading and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you like to listen, and encourage others to subscribe. It really does make a huge difference. All right, let's get to it. In 1960, the birth rate was 3.65, so most women were having between three and four kids. Fast forward to the year 2000, and the average woman was having about two kids. As of 2020, the birth rate is 1.65, meaning most women have between one and two children. Brenda, you recently wrote a piece for the Daily Wire titled The Real Crisis Affecting the American Family, and you point out that there's something really interesting going on. In this piece, you cite a documentary called Birth Gap and data from scientist Stephen J. Shaw. Now, Shaw writes that the primary driver behind falling birth rates is not that mothers are having fewer children but that the number of women who have no children has risen sharply. Is this because more women are not getting married or are they getting married but just not having kids? What do we know, Brenda?
1: Right. So he goes through and interviews a lot of women and it's a global phenomenon. So he's going all around the world. And 80% of those women who ended up having no children wanted children. So it's not a rejection of marriage, or a rejection of children, people still want to get married. 95% of teens in the United States, for example, say they want to get married and have children, but it doesn't end up happening for them. And that is really the driver of the decline in birth rates. And when he asks men and women who wanted to get married or didn't have children, what happened, they they all kind of say, well, I thought I had more time. Mm -hmm. And I always expected to have Children and they're mistaken and overly optimistic about fertility treatments, for example. They don't have a lot of knowledge about women's fertility. So it's that they're putting off marriage and they're waiting to get married. People are getting married older and then wanting to have children. And either the women who wanted these children didn't find a spouse. Or they found a spouse, and then the two of them struggled with fertility issues. So that's the primary driver of the decline in birth rates. Mm. It's
0: much more heartbreaking, honestly, <laughs> than you think. I mean, we sort of hear these stats thrown out, and it's often in a little bit of a harsh way of like, "Oh, people are just you know not doing this because they don't want to, and they're so selfish, and they're just worried about their careers." And that certainly might be a factor here. But the fact that so many women, they still want to have kids, but they're just misinformed. And I I love that you do point out um, in your writing and in pointing to the research that was done by Shaw of the fact that we live in a world that's so advanced technology-wise. And so there's this common belief, I think, among women of, oh, science, technology has advanced to the point where I can wait easily until I'm 35 or 37, so on to maybe start having kids and that'll be fine. That won't be a problem because we're at that point in medicine. It's like, well, it's possible, but we actually can't change nature to that extent, or at least not there yet.
1: Right. So he does interview some fertility specialists and they kind of open up to him of how heartbreaking it is that the odds are still very low and the odds are not good. But I think what you touched on is right of... There is a bit of a condemning attitude that sometimes comes with this, and I think that's mistaken, of yeah. it's not a rejection of marriage and children. There is sometimes that people aren't prioritizing those things. There are studies of that of singles saying, Well, I'm I'm prioritizing other things right now. So that is a shift, but I think the vast majority of people still want these things. Sometimes they also don't know how to go about getting those things. Hmm. So one of the other studies is a 25-year study of the children of divorce, oh, wow. which I thought was relevant of divorced children will say basically they're not sure what to look for. Oh, right? So they're not sure what to prioritize yep. in a spouse because they lacked the model in their own parents. And so a uh, a child who had a model of a healthy marriage will say, well, I want these fundamental things in a spouse, shared values, someone I get along with, someone I can spend 50 years with, whom I'm attracted to, and all the rest is kind of details. And so they prioritize those things and are confident it's going to happen for them. But the children of divorce aren't really sure what to look for or how to communicate with someone, how to get through fights, and they're a little bit pessimistic about marriage and the importance of marriage. So actually, it becomes a bit of a cycle of divorce and the breakdown of the family in one generation leads to a lack
0: of family formation in the next generation. Mm, and that makes so much sense. Emma, I know that this is a topic that you have researched and written on as well, and that you have delved into the weeds of many a time. Are there other factors that we should be talking about when we're considering this decline in birth rate? Yes.
2: Yeah, so a major portion of this are the envir- environmental factors that are influencing a person's ability to even get pregnant mm-hmm. um, or to conceive a child um, with their own sperm. So there was a study done um, in the last few years that actually looked at the declining fertility rates um, or declining sperm counts internationally. And it showed that across the globe, regardless of one's um, socioeconomic background, their ethnicity, that sperm counts is declining. And so that means that the likelihood that a man can conceive a child is lower and lower. And we also know that there are many studies that show that testosterone is declining, um, which also impacts a man's interest or ability in conceiving children. And So some of the reasons for this come down to the cleaners that we're using in our homes, the air fresheners or the candles that we're burning that actually mess with a man and a woman's, um, not only their hormones, but also their ability to um, be fertile and create kids. We know that a lot of the chemicals that are used in the food that we grow um, or the chemicals that are in the processed food that we consume have a big impact on this, as well as things like hormonal birth control, which a lot of times women are put on at a very young age, don't fully understand the impact that it has on its body. And then a decade later, when they're ready to start having kids, they realize that their body is not um, getting in line. And so there are some women who said that like when they see women coming in who are struggling with these fertility issues, time and time again, they can point to a long-term use of birth control as one of the unknown factors contributing. To this. And again, like Brenda is saying, these aren't men and women who hate the family or don't want kids. These are people who do want to pursue this and just expect it to work out when they get to that point and then have a really harsh awakening when they realize that the lifestyle that they were living without even knowing was actually harming their
1: ability to conceive children all along.
0: Mm.
1: And I I would agree with that. And it touches on another issue which I think is partially driving this very complicated and large issue, um, which is the boy crisis. So Emma talked about these decline in health, and that's only one measurement of what has been happening to boys and men for quite a long time, for 25 years, depending on which measurement you're looking at, plus. And one of them is the lack of health. So, and the main driver is a lack of fathers in the home. Mm-hmm. So boys who don't grow up with a father they struggle with obesity they they actually their life expectancy declines they're more likely to be at risk for deaths of despair as well as their educational and professional prospects are much more limited and then that becomes an issue that they're less likely to get married because women tend to look for people who are their equivalent or above in terms of socioeconomic status mm-hmm. or education level. So this, boys have been falling behind in education for at least 25 years. So those boys are now the men of today, and women are struggling to find spouses and partners, which is a huge driver of the decline in birth rates. So this is all very tied together. And what's so, I think,
2: reassuring about this side of the conversation is it can oftentimes feel like people are out of control or or don't have any options. And certainly for women, especially who reach the end of their childbearing years, this can be the very harsh reality. Um, So I was actually really shocked to learn this study that once a woman hits the age of 40, her chance of conceiving in a given month drops to 5%. Um, And certainly it happens, um, and the Lord is very kind to many women, but that is such a low, low odd that I don't think most women are probably aware of. And even starting at age 35, like your likelihood just starts to decline. And so a lot of people, especially in the reproductive industry, say that the only option is then to pursue in vitro fertilization or to find a surrogate to hire or go through some rather invasive and morally – wrong or problematic depending on the situation treatments to try to build this child that they didn't have the chance to build. Um, But one of the very encouraging sides of this is that there's actually a lot of positive technology or positive change that individuals can take that can actually reverse these trends in a really meaningful manner. And so going back to declining sperm count globally, they found that even with men whose sperm count was declining year after year, many of them living unhealthy lifestyles, many of them overweight or eating unclean food. They found that if they actually changed their lifestyle, they started working out, they started eating clean, they started getting in the sun and just getting like really good active time in, mm. that their sperm count started to increase again. Mm. And so this isn't a permanent trend, but it is a trend that unless we change our lifestyle, um, we change the way that we're living isn't going to change. But it is something that's within our power to change. Same for women, women who um, pursue diets that help balance their hormones, who live very active, healthy lifestyles, who get enough sleep like the fact that not getting enough sleep actually hurts your ability to conceive children is insane um but again yeah. that's something that's often within your control to change i'm um, getting off hormonal birth control if that's possible for you things that you really can take um under your own personal agency that studies have shown can sometimes like undo the harm that has been done to your body through these different mechanisms Um, and then not to mention beyond that, um, instead of going the route of reproductive technology which really focuses on these very harsh measures of creating children there are entire industries of procreative technology doctors that are looking at ways to work within a woman or a man's natural body to restore it to its proper functioning. Um, So for men, this can be um, drugs and procedures that actually increase sperm motility. Um, so just help the sperm get to the uh, goalpost there, <laughs> right? And for women, what this can look like are different treatments that actually help ovulation or help their eggs and like they're supposed to. And none of these measures are invasive and none of these measures are hit some of the problematic ethical concerns in the process, but allow people to have the children that they want to have. And again, a lot of that just takes research and knowledge that tends to lack in these conversations. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, within this conversation, we have to talk about a whole other side of the coin, which is that some people are looking at this decline in birth rate, and they're actually celebrating it. They're saying, This is a good thing. And one of those people is Sarah Harper. She's an advisor to the World Economic Forum, and uh, she directs Oxford's Institute on Population Aging. And she recently said, quote, I think it's a good thing that the high-income, high-consuming countries of the world are reducing the number of children that they're having. I'm quite positive about that. So she cites concerns over carbon emissions as a reason to have fewer children. Do you all give any weight to this, that there's actually, you know, whether you fully agree with her or not, that there's some world where there's pros to having fewer new people (laughs) entering our world? (laughs)
2: I can't think of a single instance where this is a positive. So think about Social Security, which requires younger workers entering the workforce to pay for your retirement. Think about national security. In order to have a strong and ready government, uh, military, mm-hmm. you need young men who are able-bodied and ready to fight. Um, think about research and innovation. This requires new minds um, competitively fighting in the marketplace of ideas um, in order to move science and industry along. Um, There are cases where um, in other countries like Japan and China, entire district schools are shutting down because they simply do not have children to send to the schools. Um, And this is a harsh reality. And their birth rate replacement level is under one per woman, so incredibly low. Um, But the United States is at 1.7 right now. And it's not that unheard of to start thinking about, um, and actually universities have started preparing for lower um, enrollments in schools. And so universities that are reaching this point of like economic crisis because they don't have enough people um, to take it on. But then- Think about happiness factors, right? Like what do people cite as some of the most meaningful indicators of happiness and purpose in a person's life? It's their children mm-hmm. or their family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's siblings to grow up with. Like the number of children yes. who were growing up as only children or with only two siblings when many of them would have loved to have a house full of kids to run around with um, is just really heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and this is where it gets tricky, though, as is this isn't just an economic, um, or it's not just personal preference playing into this. So starting in the 1970s, John D. Rockefeller III Mm. um, actually got really concerned about the population bomb, um, Mm. right? And so A lot of people say that the climate agenda that the World Economic Forum is promoting today is just another version of the population crisis of the 1970s, where we thought we were going to have too many people um, and not enough resources. And it turns out that some really cool improvements in agriculture meant that we had plenty of food and that there wasn't a population crisis, um, but the damage was done. So John D. Rockefeller III, working with Congress, actually pushed to promote a few particular policies to ensure that women had fewer children. Mm. And he was far more successful than he ever thought he would be. And so he said that if we could provide abortion on demand, birth control for everyone, if we can remove home ec classes from high school so women aren't being taught how to care for the home, how to cook, um, how to do some of these domestic arts that if you're in school all day, you might not have the opportunity to learn from your mom in the same way. Um, and if we can promote higher education such that women deliver delay marriage and delay childbearing and don't have time to have as many kids, then this will solve our population crisis. Um, And this isn't to say that higher education is bad, right? It's the fact that they were using higher education to try to reduce the number of children. Um, And his um, policies and this, this cultural change that he promoted has been more successful than he ever could have imagined. And now the World Economic Forum is picking up this same talking point. But at the end of the day what you were left with are very fragile and weak nations, very fragile and weak societies that are actually ripe for coercion and control from some of these unelected bureaucracies like the World Economic Forum, who I would imagine have a pretty precise agenda in mind that um, isn't as concerned with your personal flourishing and and well-being as they might pretend to be.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. That's brilliant, Emma. Thanks for breaking that down. I think it's it's so important to realize that the things happening in our society, it's not by accident, right? That there was actually these things put in place by individuals like the Rockefellers. It's like, wow, okay, we're still reaping. We're still reaping the results of some of those agendas that were pushed that are still being pushed. But there is, there's a pushback that we're also seeing against some of this cultural, uh, cultural trends and some of that pushback is coming from a group known as the Tradwives. So we're going to talk a little bit about them, who they are, and why maybe some of their agenda is a little bit problematic in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you all about a super fun way that you can stay connected with Problematic Women throughout the week. Problematic Women is on Instagram. You can catch highlights of the show, fun reels, inspiring social graphics, and just stay informed on the news that you as a Problematic Woman care about. So go ahead and open your Instagram app and search for Problematic Women and look for our bright pink logo. So, trad wives is a term that a lot of us have probably heard before, but you might not really know what exactly it is. So, Emma, let's start first by defining what is a trad wife. You have written a little bit about this, you have weighed in on X, formerly Twitter. Share with us what is a trad wife? So a trad
2: wife, I think, at the most basic level has to do um, with women who have chosen a very, quote unquote, traditional lifestyle. So these women have rejected um, any form of a nine to five job. They are full time at home as homemakers, homeschooling potentially their kids um, and caring for the kids at home, whereas their husband is playing, um, is the breadwinner who is making all of the money and is really out in the public square. And so, yeah, that, I think that would be the most basic yeah. definition, just women who like want to be at home. Fully with their kids, and
0: then view husband's role as
2: fully outside of the home.
0: It's almost like going back to Leave It to Beaver, 1950s, very classic traditional. Precisely. Roles. Okay. Yes. Got it. All right. So, Emma, you recently responded to a post on X, like we said, formerly Twitter. Still getting used to that change. That it's X now. But. Um, You responded to a woman who is a self-declared trad wife. Her name is Isabella Riley Moody. She has over 100,000 followers on X. And she says that she is a trad wife in her own bio. And she posted two weeks ago and said, my husband and I will be having our first baby this October. I expect to be the one Fully taking care of our baby girl. My husband will not have to change one diaper. He works so I can be a stay at home mom and give our daughter the proper attention she needs. The least I could do is fully take care of her while keeping our house clean and serving him. Emma, you wrote a response to this. What did you say? So I called this um, the development
2: of trad wife feminism. Mm. So feminism, like Brenda has written on a lot, views the nature, um, the dynamic between men and women as a power struggle or a battle of the sexes. And in feminism, your job is to get power over a man so as to set yourself up um, securely. And so in trad wife feminism, like the tweet that you just read, we're seeing women pretend to promote traditional values, where they want to invest in the life of the home and care for their husband, but really what they're promoting is a very feminist ideology where these tradwife feminists recognize that the ultimate power is in the home, not in the workforce, like traditional feminists said. And so in order to secure most of the power, they've decided that the home is their domain and their domain alone. And so they will take care of changing all of the diapers, of doing all of the cleaning, of ensuring the home is running and that husbands are not allowed to be involved in that instead just need to be outside the home making money Um, but what this ends up doing is it actually ends up isolating and alienating husbands from the very life of the home ensuring that they don't really have a powerful voice or say in the development of the home and that all of that power stays within um, yeah within the realm of this trad wife feminist and so what's so bizarre about this is it's completely ahistorical. at no point in history did you actually have this firm women, at least like no point in history beyond like the 1950s to present, right? Did women have like, I am fully in charge of kids and you were fully in charge of making money. Instead, um, the ideal home understood that husbands and wives were partnering together in the flourishing of the home. And so they oftentimes were working on the family farm together. They were working in the trade shops. They were making money. And on the same end, they were both caring for the kids and ensuring that they received the education and the food and the care that they needed in order to thrive. this sort of um, interconnected vision of husband and wife, I think, really is the vision we should all go for and has little to do with exactly who changes the diapers, who does the cleaning, who picks up the kids. Um, but with Tried to Feminists, they end up taking the aesthetic of what the ideal life looks like, but infusing it with this feminist ideology.
0: Mm. Brenda, I want to ask you to weigh in on this because you have done so much research on the feminist topic. What are your thoughts on this uh, sort of element within Trad Wives of saying we need this total divide where men are fully outside and women are doing everything in the home?
1: Right. So I agree with Emma, that's not how it has worked throughout human history. Men and women have been partners, and there is often some sort of division of labor, but that is within the couple, and they decide, and it's much more integrated, Mm -hmm. right, than we sometimes give a flat-footed description. But one of the things I found troubling about this particular tweet um, was that... It really kind of denigrates the role of the father, I would Mm -hmm. say, of we have a lot of research at this point, Jonathan Haidt, Warren Farrell, some of the other psychologists have done research into the importance of the father in particular for raising children and particularly boys of rubble and tumble play, of playing with their children and developing their motor skills, developing their capacity for delayed gratification, all these things that particularly a father does, which is not to say that mom doesn't do other things. Both mom and dad are important, but they contribute in different ways. And so to kind of not allow your father allow dad to take that role on, I think is kind of disturbing of you need both mom and dad to raise the children and you need both of them. In that relationship, Mm
2: -hmm. and like you were saying earlier, um, when it comes to the impact of divorce on families, Mm. what happens to the children who are raised in households like this, where they see mom doing everything, um, and maybe even like in a rather like controlling and rigid sense, um, and they never see the vision of what it looks like for their father to be involved in the life of the home? Like, to what degree do you raise sons who don't value the home, um, who don't know how to clean, they don't know how to care for siblings, and they don't really care about being an engaged father and then you potentially raise daughters who see the mothers in this very manipulative role um, or just this very like isolated and lonely role who then say why would I want to get married why would I want to have kids if it just means that I'm going to have to take on the burden of doing all the things that it takes to have a productive household all by myself with a husband who doesn't value it or doesn't care about it Um, and I think like that's going to be where you really see the fruit of these movements is children who don't want anything to to do with the home because they just saw it as such um, a
1: manipulating or just like really lonely or overwhelming place to be. Yeah, right. And you could, if mom is constantly intervening, that could inadvertently send the message that dad is not capable or trustworthy, Mm -hmm. which is a really bad message to send. It's Mm -hmm. actually in some ways similar to the critique of like things like, Everybody loves Raymond and that caricature that I would assume tradwives would be against, but in an odd sort of way, they're actually promoting that similar attitude.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's in no way showing your kids that marriage is a partnership. It's putting it on display as there's two individuals who have two very separate roles and they happen to live together under the same roof and have birth children together, which is so contradictory towards the biblical definition of marriage and partnership that God put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it together. And there was that joint uh, unity that they were to share together and to co-labor together and to bring forth fruit together. Even just uh, you think about how God designed men and women that they make a child together. And, you know, when I think about couples that I've seen do this really well, there's something almost sacred and beautiful when you watch a couple that's sharing responsibilities. And I'm thinking back to um, a couple I was in a Bible study with years ago. And they, um, they both really equally split pretty much every responsibility. And there was something that I almost just couldn't put a finger on. But it was this incredible beauty of uh, Michael and Hannah just sharing and tag teaming is the best way I can describe it. That, you know, one of their toddlers was running one direction and the other one was holding the baby and then they would switch. And it was just this constant back and forth, back and forth and it was like I looked at them and I was like and I told them I was like you guys are my goal like I want that because there is something beautiful and it's a reflection I think of God's design that we have this partnership within marriage and it's not this uh, almost tyrannical division of labor and you know, these hard lines being drawn for one there's a level it's just it's not practical and I'm like oh goodness for this this woman who says her her husband will never change one diaper who they're expecting in October I'm like Oh, I don't know that that is at all practical. Like, I was, and Emma, I would love to have your thoughts on this as a somewhat new mom. But, you know, a couple weeks ago, I visited my friend who just had a baby. And I'm just like, my goodness, how demanding. It's simple, but it's so demanding the cycle of a baby eating, pooping, sleeping. And it's just on repeat over and over and over. And the song and dance that she and her husband are doing together is both beautiful and it's exhausting to watch. Like, I just can't imagine having a mindset of my husband is not available to help me. I mean, a, you might as well be a single mom then. Like, what's even the point? Yeah. And this is the humorous thing, right? Like,
2: Isabella Moody hasn't had her child yet Mm -hmm. she has no idea in a very real sense like what she's stepping into Um, and so my friends and I call this the uh, quote-unquote diaper discourse um, (laughs) where anytime this a trad wife feminist like posts something ridiculous like another one um, a couple of weeks ago tweeted that if your husband is changing diapers then something is seriously wrong in your marriage and all of my friends were just like this is the funniest thing you've ever (laughs) read Um, because some of them like had twins for their first children and they were like, well, at the end of the day, either I wouldn't be alive or one of my twins wouldn't be alive <laughs> if it was all on me. But like we were not getting out of that alone. Um, and it's just like even practically like yeah. you're not meant to do it alone. And this is I think like where like the sort of LARPing trad wife dynamic doesn't work is that even if in this hypothetical world, women did 99 percent of the child care throughout a kid's life, it was never just the mother they were living in intergenerational homes on farms and local communities where Mm. your mother was present, your aunts were there, your cousins were there. And so even if it was primarily women caring for children, it was multiple women caring for the kids that you had, not just you alone. Mm. And in today, the economic structure that we have, um, it's less likely that you have extended family members in your home, but you do have your husband. And then that's where the partnership really comes out. Um, And yes, my husband changes diapers and he helps with bedtime. And he cares for our daughter. Um, and like when my daughter was first born, I was coming off of the epidural and had like a really, really negative, um, just interaction to it. Mm-hmm. And like needed to take an hour where I was just having to like, um, like I was starting to throw up which is like the most painful thing right after giving birth when your abdomen doesn't exist and i was super lightheaded and i was passing out and so like i could not physically hold our daughter safely and so i like looked at my husband i was like i need you to hold her and just like hang out with her for a little bit (laughs) while i figure out what's going on here and so for an hour after our daughter was born he walked around singing her hymns and talking to her and calling family members and to this day if she is fussy all he has to do is pick her up, start singing a hymn, and she will mm. fall asleep in his arms. Oh, that's even after I've tried for 30 minutes oh, and she refuses. Um, but, like, that's the beauty of fathers involved in the life yeah. of the child and also just, like, the practical necessity of it.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so, so beautiful. All right. Well, we are covering a lot of cultural trends today. So we're going to pivot a little bit, but talk about something that affects all of us, and that is cell phones. So a recent survey conducted of 1,000 Americans ages 18 and older it was conducted by Reviews.org found that the average American spends four hours and 25 minutes a day on their phone. Now, this survey had a ton of different findings. I'll just go over a few of them. So 57% of Americans say that they're addicted to their phones. 89%, so 89 out of every 100 Americans check their phone within 10 minutes of waking up in the morning, and 60% of Americans, 60 out of 1 out of every 100 sleep with their phones at night, and 75% check their phones within 5 minutes of receiving a notification. So I will be the first to raise my hand and say I'm guilty of most of these things. Oh, I hate to say that, but it's true. Um, How much time a day do you all think you spend on your phones? So I just checked my screen usage on my iPhone. Um, and I am at an average of three hours and fifty two minutes every day. Okay. So you're you're below the average. It's still a lot, but you can take heart and you're below the average. Good below job. the average, <laughs> yeah. But I totally violate
2: every single one of the statistics, like basically a hundred percent. So <laughs> uh, Brenda, do
0: you know how much time you're spending?
1: I don't, but I I am actually a bit of a luddite, so I don't like technology. I I do try and stay away Good from it. You. I probably so most of the things. This is me justifying it to myself. Um, <laughs> but most of the apps I use on my phone are things like Spotify, or yeah. you know I'm a runner, so I use the running app. And I would like to see a breakdown of like. Which apps are you using, and is it, yes. like, an app that you're engaged with, or is it something like that where you kind of
0: have it on the background? I know. Sometimes I take heart with this because it that percentage includes things like your directional apps and using Google Maps and stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, you know, you can have that on if you're doing a road trip over the weekend. You might have that on for three hours, so... Like, sometimes I try and comfort myself. Like, it's not all me staring at my phone. Sometimes it's just practical things. But I have both a work phone and a personal phone. And I shudder to think between the two of them. And, you know, being on on the phone both for work things, like running the Problematic Woman Instagram account and then also enjoying Reels on my personal <laughs> Instagram account. It, it's a lot of time and it's a lot of dedication. And I'm one of those people. I don't sleep with my phone, but I do sleep with it on the nightstand right next to me i use it as an alarm and you know we've heard all the statistics and kind of stirrings of well maybe that's really not good and the radiation and there's a lot of questions around that so now i'm like okay maybe i need to go back to the ways of one of those old-fashioned alarm clocks i don't know do you all use your phone as, as an alarm
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah. (laughs) I I, I do.
0: Yeah. My husband has an old-fashioned
2: alarm clock. He's um, of your same spirit, Brenda. Um, But I hate the noise that it makes um, in the morning when it goes off. Like, it's just such a rude and harsh sound. It is harsh. I really prefer to, like, (laughs) choose the exact alarm sound that makes waking up happy in the morning. Um, You know, that's how I justify having my phone within arm's reach, like, at all times in my life.
0: Very much so. Yeah, I have the, like, nature bird sound. And it's a great way to wake up in the morning. (laughs) Way better than I remember, yeah, the alarm clocks that I had in sixth grade. And it was, like, literally the little yellow or the little metal thing that just, like, went back and forth and hit the two sides and... It's just there's something very jarring about waking up to that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's so bizarre, though. My daughter is now five months old. um, And even when she was three months old, like really just starting to engage and interact – she figured out that there is something special about these phones that my mom and dad have, and if you pull your phone out in front of her, she will like look at it and stare and dive and try to reach wow. it and touch it more than she will any other object wow. that we own. And even at a young age, it's kind of terrifying. Like her brain has already been wired in such a way as to recognize that there is something desirable that I want in this phone, um, and it's really kind of terrifying because I think mm-hmm. we're probably at the age where our parents didn't have smartphones. When we were growing up, um, but for my daughter's generation, they're never going to know a world apart from mom being on her phone an average of four hours a day. And what is that doing to the way that she sees things? Right. Yeah. So there,
1: this is this is completely deliberative. I mean, it's these the phones and the tablets are designed for this. It's the bright colors, right, that capture infants yes. immediately. So it's meant to capture your attention. Yeah. There was a recent study that came out just a couple weeks ago on the effects of tablets mm. on children and it is harming their cognitive development, which is not really a surprise. So I think one of the things that we need to do is be cognizant and that this addiction kind of has a trajectory, an addiction trajectory of like it starts with iPads and then there's a continuation to phones and social media and dating apps and all these things of like they're designed to tap into your limbic system and to engage your attention. So trying to prevent these things as well, maybe delaying that addiction trajectory for as long as possible and like parents setting limits and,
0: and trying not to yeah. to give these things to their toddlers too much. Yeah. Well, there, I think there is a sense of ownership that we have to take over, right? Because phones are not going anywhere. Tablets aren't going anywhere. Technology continues to advance so it's more just we're left with this opportunity, we'll call it an opportunity, mm-hmm. <laughs> to decide how we want to rule over our phones instead of having them rule over us. And so I, I think there's so many different tools out there that you can use, whether it's you know, setting those timers on Instagram so that you're notified after you've been on it for 15 minutes. I know it's very easy to ignore those, but doing those types of little things. But even more than that, I think just like sitting down, writing out like, what is the role that I want my phone to play in my life? Because if you don't tell it which role you want it to play in your life, it will sort of begin to consume your life. Yeah. And so then it's, okay, if if I want it to only be an active part of my life for 30 minutes a day where I'm fully giving it all of my attention, how am I actually going to execute that? And it's being really, really practical with yourself. Because I think if we don't take those steps, it does become this all-consuming force.
1: Yeah. Dr. Josh Mitchell, in his book on American Awakening, had a really good kind of philosophical approach Mm. to this. And one of the things he said is... There is a danger in turning a supplement into a substitute. Mm. So he said the proper role of a lot of these technologies in using them in a neutral fashion is that they act as a supplement. Right. So an example would be social media can supplement your friendships if you're using it to actually stay in touch and allow that friendship to thrive. Right. Actually contributing to that friendship. Where it goes awry is if it's a substitute, where you yep. are just having friends online, and that you should never have a supplement become a substitute. That's where the danger is. Like I, like you, use ways for everything, and the danger is then: can you read a map now? Yep. Right? If you were in a situation like I grew up in a very small town of like you don't have cell phone reception everywhere so if you're in that caught in that situation can you still get from navigate a to b. right
0: yeah which is so important and really i think critical too just for our own minds and development to like mm-hmm. test out can i figure out it's how to skill. get from a to b it's a skill yeah. it really is a skill wow all right well thank you brenda thank you emma for joining today this has been a very full conversation and just a delight to do this show with you have you all on it was a delight for us as well. <laughs> Thanks, Virginia. All right. Well, stay tuned because up next, we crown our Problem Medical woman of the Week. We get it. With big media bias, it's hard to find accurate, honest news. That's why we've put together the Morning Bell newsletter, a compilation of the top stories and conservative commentary. To subscribe, just head to DailySignal.com slash Morning Bell subscription or visit DailySignal.com and click on the connect button at the top of the page. We are changing it up a little bit this week, and instead of crowning a problematic woman of the week, we're going to crown a problematic magazine. Evie Magazine is a woman's magazine that seeks to build women up and empower them with the tools to think critically about what's going on in our world. Some of our guests who we've had on this show actually contribute to the magazine, such as Evie Solheim, which Evie Solheim does not have uh, any relationship with evie magazine specifically but she does contribute to it um and so you know instead of maybe picking up or seeking out a copy of vogue magazine or people magazine check out evie you know they really are focused on promoting women often traditional values but they have super fun sections style makeup they cover so much pop culture But again, from a lens that really seeks to empower women and celebrate the beauty of women in a way that is uplifting. And so this is not any sort of formal endorsement. We have no partnership with Evie Magazine. But as women, I think it's so important that we are celebrating those who are seeking to build women up so if you have never checked out or read evie magazine make sure that you check them out it's evie magazine evie magazine.com you can check them out online and you can also sign up to get and subscribe to their print edition If you like receiving that uh, physical edition in the mail, it's very aesthetically pleasing. They have just absolutely beautiful pictures. It has the feel and the tone of a Vogue magazine, but a lot more uplifting and full of just the values that we are so often celebrating and embracing here at problematic women but with that that's going to do it for this week's edition of problematic women thanks so much for being with us for joining the conversation with emma and brenda and i and make sure to join us once again next thursday morning for a brand new edition and in the meantime please subscribe and share as conservatives We need your support in the podcast world, so it would be wonderful if you would take a minute to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Have a great rest of your week. Enjoy your weekend. We'll see you right back here next Thursday.
1: Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation.
0: It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram.
1: We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.